In this episode, Talita Ferreira, former CFO of BMW UK, shares her insights into the skills CFOs need to develop in order to reach their full potential, and why top CFOs have embraced a new agile mindset to accelerate their careers and lead effectively. Hi, I'm Rob, and this is the CFO Playbook. Each week, you'll get insights from world-class finance leaders to help you grow your company and yourself and face the challenges required of today's finance leaders. Talita, thank you so much for uh, joining the show. It's great to have you on. Thank you, Rob. I'm really excited to be here with you. It's great to be talking to you. Um, you, You've had quite a unique journey as a finance professional, so really excited to talk to you about that today. And so perhaps for our listeners, you could give us a brief rundown of where you've been, what you're doing now, and where you see yourself going in the future. So just a whistle stop to a chartered accountant, qualified with KPMG, worked in South Africa, if you noticed the accent. So worked in South African banks after that, and then joined BMW to go on a career journey that I had never expected. I realized very quickly in South Africa, reporting to the CFO that if I didn't go to the heartbeat of the company in Munich, I would not be able to become a CFO. So I um, didn't meet my target of doing it by 30. I was a CFO then by by the time I was 35, but of a far larger company, 5 billion portfolio in the UK. So yes, a little, sometimes we achieve targets a little bit later, but they're more meaningful. I went to BMW, worked in South Africa, then in Germany in financial services. It made a lot of sense to work for financial services in Germany. In South Africa, it was for the um, sales company and the automotive company. I was then posted to the UK to be the CFO and defining career moment. When I was the CFO, I was also made the chief people officer, which of course brought very interesting dynamics with it, which uh, we can speak about later. So I climbed my way to the top 300 of BMW, so the 300 top leadership group, and was very surprised when I got there and thought that I didn't want to spend 20 years doing that. So that was a huge surprise to me. I was very focused on getting there. And then it was almost like reinventing myself. What is it that I want to do? And I wanted to be very purpose-led. So what is it that I really want to make a difference in? And so my last year in corporate life, I wrote a book. I stepped out, started to consult. In the first year, I ran a change and transformation project for BMW in Munich as a consultant. And then I started to feel what is it that I really love doing. So I wanted to keep that connection to business. So I have a portfolio career. I'm a non-exec director of Ford Credit Bank Europe and the chair of the audit committee because I don't want to lose that, that I know that feeling of what it's like to be in a boardroom and what the challenges are. So that's what I do part of my time. The other time I train for the Institute of Directors on leadership and strategy. So I help directors to understand their leadership behaviors that are really important in the boardroom. And so I work with 20 to 40 directors, just depending on how many courses I run a month. I then also coach CFOs and sometimes HR directors. I don't do too many. So I always limit myself to only five people because I don't have the real capacity to do it properly with more. And then I have an online platform called Finance Inspired for Success. And there I run some online short courses, four and a half, three and a half hours, where I try to inspire inspire finance leaders based on leadership principles that I believe are really key. So that's me in a nutshell. 
amazing that's there's so much in there to unpack and and so interesting to hear of your journey and how how fast your rise was to to CFO and then you then you said that actually once you got there you were actually interested in in pursuing other challenges and and wasn't quite what you were expecting and so yeah super interesting and lots to unpack but let's let's start with while you were at BMW and you were CFO and you mentioned that on your journey to becoming CFO at BMW you were in South Africa and then in Munich and and then when you became CFO you were also asked to run the people function which is really interesting. And so we'd love to understand for a finance leader, what that must have been like and what insights that gave you as a finance leader. Well, so let's just start that that's one of the major challenges that I faced during my career is being made the chief people officer. And it actually started off with the CEO having a conversation within the first couple of weeks with me and saying something like he didn't think that I'd be running the people department for very long. It would be coming to him because I'd probably do it like everyone else before me, very much like a controller. And of course, that's a little bit like a red rag to a bull for me. I am a Taurus after all. So it was a little bit like a red rag because you can't tell me I have something, but I don't really have it. And so it really started me on this journey of trying to understand what motivates people, what makes a good HR director. And, you know, it was very much out of my comfort zone. That's something that I can really say from the very beginning. But I had a phenomenal team who really embraced me and saw that I wanted to learn, wanted to change, was very curious. And it took me on a journey where later, how would I say I solved that challenge? I would say I now perfectly know that I'm two halves of a perfect whole. So that very finance orientated, risk orientated director that can sit on a board and be a chair of audit, but that other half that is really engaged with what drives people, what motivates people, what makes great leaders. And I think that's my my unique USP. I can still speak that financial language, but I can also do the people language, if, if one could call it that. 100%. It certainly is a USP. And I think, you know, I think it's very common among finance professionals to perhaps, you know, neglect soft skills or, or the intangible skills and to favor the technical and the analytical. And, and that's typically how most finance professionals rise through their careers is, is an excellence in, in, in technical and analytical. And was that the same for you? And was it at that moment that you were sort of ex- asked to run the, the, the people function exposed to that other side of the, of the business? It led you to understand how important those softer skills are. Yes, I always say um, sometimes when I present to global finance leaders or to CFOs, I always say that I was not living my full potential for a third of my career. And what I mean by that is really I was focusing on my specialism on adapting that to the business. And I very much believe there are two other pillars that we need to focus on as leaders, especially as finance leaders as well, because it's so out of the comfort zone. And the one pillar is that growth and development of yourself as a leader. And I really believe that that is a journey and you are not a leader overnight. I mean, in my 20s, someone called me an awful leader. In my 40s, one of the HR leaders who worked with me said I was the best leader that she'd ever worked for. So, you know, it's that difference. It's a journey that you go on. It's about realizations that you have on the way. So that second pillar, very, very much about yourself and your own growth as a leader. And then the other one is growing your team 
I think what we totally underestimate is the power behind growing a team and developing a team consistently. And so it's not just those great finance events where you go away and you have a team away day. It's really making a concerted effort to grow and develop that team through all the interactions that you have with them as individuals and as a collective. And it's that collective piece that I see is missing. So yes, I would definitely say HR brought that realization to me in a very, very stark way. And as soon as I started experimenting with those things, I became more and more successful. And I honestly think that that's what drove my success because I was doing things that other finance leaders weren't doing. And so it was very easy for me in a group like BMW with many other finance leaders to kind of stand out because I was doing something different. It's so true what you say in terms of the leadership, developing leadership skills as being a journey. I mean, I certainly remember when I started out managing and leading teams, it wasn't straightforward and it doesn't come naturally, I think, to a lot of us. Of course, yeah, you, there are certain folks that, that are predisposed perhaps to, to naturally be good leaders. But for the rest of us, it's a, it's a journey of learning and something that perhaps isn't so obvious as to what steps can be taken in order to start that journey. And so as you started to make that realization that leadership and growing the skills around leadership is so important to success for both the finance function and the company as a whole what kind of what steps did you take to 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 become a better leader how how did you move from being told in your 20s that you're a terrible leader to in your 40s being told you're the you know someone said you were the best leader that they've ever worked for which which has got to be i think in our in our own careers one of the greatest compliments that we can ever receive Especially from an HR professional, it was really, it's a, you know, it was a moment that really touched me. I suppose let's look a little bit about how I was able to drive efficiency. So I was always looking, working with the back office. So I was always working with multiple back office functions. So not just finance. So finance, IT, legal, HR, project development, all of that strategy would report into me. And so for me, it was always about getting that collective to be a team. So it it would be really, this collective needs to be a team. How do I do that properly? And the very first thing that I always started with was purpose. And it was, how can I, so I read Simon Sinek's book, I don't know when, and it really made an impact on me. And the game changer for me in my team was by trying to connect and bond those disparate functions who very much in large organizations act act like silos. And even even in, you know, I say large organizations, one of the CFOs that I recently mentioned, uh, mentored, is in a startup. And it's also quite silo orientated, those back office functions. So it's really connecting, bonding them, creating a sense of belonging. And the thing that I find makes the biggest difference is there, what is our purpose? So we brainstormed that as a team. And the first time I ever did it with a team, we came up with, we need to be enablers of the business. So that that was the great thing. But the, the second part to it was, we also need to be the developers of people. And I would say that's another thing that was kind of driven because I had HR in there. But what I saw is that none of those analytical minded functions were very good at training people coming up behind them. So so all those leaders really needed to understand that part of their purpose was also training the next generation of leaders. And then to understand how do they do that through coaching and mentoring. So I would say purpose, one immense cornerstone of of that process. The second one, I would say really 
importantly is is around working differently in those interactions that you have with that collective team because you want to bring out the collective brilliance because they think differently and they all have different specialisms it's really good if you get them to think about each other's problems and they have really creative ideas in solving each other's issues so one of the things that i used to do was brainstorm with a team Or, you know, when I was faced with an issue, ask, what is the real problem here? So in the boardroom, we're having a a disagreement about something. I want to understand what you guys think is the real problem. So what is really the thing that sits underneath it? Because very often we stay at such a superficial level that we don't really get to the, the real meat of what the problem is. And if you don't get to what the real meat of the problem is, you won't really get to a good answer. So very much questioning, asking questions. Are we addressing the right issue here? What is the real issue? So so I started to lead in a very different way, that purpose, then this continuous team development, understanding more of a value-based approach. What are the values of the people in my team? What are the strengths of the people in my team? How do we complement each other? Every time we interact, rather brainstorm, grow, develop. So I moved totally away from those type of show and tell meetings. Let's rather brainstorm topics, issues that we have, grow as a collective, understand each other and leave the one-to-one meetings that I have with those role players to do the show and tell. And even there, I was like, I don't, you know, if you're on track with your objectives, I used to do the objective setting really in detail once a year with my my individual team members. And if they were on top of things, I didn't really need to know. I really wanted to know where do they need my help, my guidance? Where could I where could I help them to achieve things better? So they kind of knew our interactions and meetings were more about growing and develop them, de- developing them as individuals and also as a collective, as a group to unlock the brilliance. So many insights in that. And um the book that you said kind of kicked it all off in terms of the a different way of thinking. It was uh, Simon Sinek. I, I think you're talking about the book uh, Start With Why. Is that right? That's it. Exactly. Yeah. So, so if anyone wants to to check that book out, it's a it's a superb book. And in fact, it's it's um, the the YouTube videos of Simon explaining why start with why, and it's a fascinating viewpoint to how to lead. You know, there might be people thinking, okay, this this all sounds really interesting. I get what you're doing, but as as finance leaders, perhaps we tend to always think about, well, what's the analytical benefit? Like, what, what's what's the actual ROI of this? So what's the so what? What's the impact of 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 taking this purpose driven approach and thinking differently about how to how to lead teams and organizations? I think you just need to do a Google search on high performing teams and you'll find out that they deliver ROI and that there's been lots of research by great consulting companies like McKinsey, like Accenture, that all says once you function better as a team and you can unlock creativity, you're far more able to drive bottom line profit. You know, for me, that's not even a question. You just, you can do a Google search and you'll come up with why high performing teams perform better. I mean, one of the, one of the great ones is Google who did more than a two year research project on a high performing team. And they wanted to know why some of the sales teams outperformed the others by twice. So it was double the outperformance. So the ones who weren't high-performing teams didn't meet the targets and the ones who did outperform their targets 
by two times. And the question was, what was it that made them outperform? And it was really psychological safety in the team. And psychological safety seems like an extremely difficult concept, but it's just that people are willing to say what they really think. They're willing to give you your their creative brilliance and they speak truth to power because you've created the environment where they feel like they can do that. And so the Google research is very interesting. It's called Project Aristotle. And hopefully I got the, the sales performance right there because, you know, sometimes I remember numbers and they're not really how I remember numbers, but the outperformance was definitely there. It's compelling. It's uh, and, and it's obvious that high-performing teams are driven by the principles that you've, you've, you've already mentioned. And perhaps at BMW, when you started to implement this, uh, you know, perhaps from a, through a finance lens, did you actually start to see the benefits manifest themselves? Yes, I definitely did. So just looking at the, the, the topic that we spoke about around giving that purpose and also developing people to come up behind you. So in the first years after implementing this, we had far less recruitment costs because we had far less people leave us. On average, even the graduates stayed with my teams longer. So I knew we would have basically a year with a graduate in our teams they tended to spend two, two and a half years. So on average, maybe 18 months longer than they would spend with another team. So, you know, there's that energy in within recruitment. Some of those recruitments were external. And, and also by, by getting people to actually help develop those behind them, when they were ready to move on, there were natural successes behind them. And therefore, we didn't have to go externally recruit and look for successes because every single leader was on a journey to help develop the people behind them. So definitely in, immediate saving in, in recruitment cost. Another thing that I would say is the CEO at the time had said to me before I started with the purpose, he said to me, your team is the business prevention team. So all those collective back office teams of yours, and especially finance and risk, because it was in financial services, is the business prevention team. And so we were really geared in a way that we were saying no all the time to the business. And as soon as we changed to this mindset of being more enablers of the business, the portfolio grew a lot more because we were finding ways to support the business, to grow it, but within a risk tolerance and a risk appetite that we could live with. And so definitely those two, two instances were really already showing bottom line growth for the company. That's so interesting. And especially the last thing you mentioned about turning the mindset around from, from perhaps being the ones who were saying no to enabling. I'd love to understand maybe what on a, on a practical level you were doing to, okay, there's a mindset shift, but how did that, what were you doing on a daily basis that was different to become much more of the, the business enablers? It's interesting because there's, there's, I, I think there's going to be parallels here with a previous conversation I had with Anders Leo Lindbergh, who uh, runs the Business Partnering Institute, has a similar philosophy here. But I, I'd just be interested to understand from your experience at that time of making that mind shift, what were the sort of practical things that you would that you and your teams were doing differently to be business enablers? 
So the first thing that I started with the team is tell them about a friend of mine who I worked with in South Africa who was a lawyer because people really grasp stories. And I said he very much developed as a lawyer himself. At the beginning, he was a lawyer who might have been more in the variety when I say I want to go into a partnership or whatever it is, and he's setting up the legal agreement. He tells me everything that I can't do. And then I say, but I don't want you to tell me what I can't do. This is my vision of where I want to go. Can you please help me contractually to somewhere find a way to get there? So that was the story that I told so that they could understand. I want them to be like that lawyer who is actually helping us to find the way. And then it's about questioning. It's about, well, how can we make this a success? Instead of focusing on everything we can't do, change the conversations to what would make this a success? What steps could we take to do this? If someone says to me, well, we can't do that, then the question is, well, what can we do that could meet them halfway, 75%, whatever it is? So so it's, it's questioning in a different way, not allowing the energy to be spent on the no, but switching the energy to, well, how can we brainstorm this to make elements of it work? And, you know, getting finance to understand brainstorming is a powerful thing. Working with post-it notes and facilitators and saying, well, how can we make this work? And what type of questions should we ask ourselves? You know, I love Roger Martin. He's a a strategic consultant and he speaks about how this group of uh, board was at loggerheads with moving the board forward. And he just said strategically, and I think it was something, I won't remember the exact comment now, but something like, what would make this a perfect solution? So what are the conditions that would make this perfect? So instead of focusing on all the things that you can't do, say, what are the conditions you need to make it perfect? Because of course, once you go to the place of what conditions do you need, you're brainstorming the possibility. And once you're brainstorming the possibility, you're getting away from, well, we can't really do it. And and so I think it's it's starting with teams in that framework of not how can we say no, but how can we say yes? What do we need to say yes? How do we need to change? What conditions do we need to have? And then, you know, you're really moving to a solution-based place instead of a place of just saying no. And did that in any way affect the sorts of numbers that you were bringing to the conversation, the reporting, perhaps looking at leading indicators versus lagging indicators? Was there, was there any shift in terms of the sorts of analytical approach that you were taking to support the business? Well, there was far more of an approach of engaging the business. So after BMW, or perhaps during your time at BMW, you decided that you wanted to step out of the corporate finance world. Can you tell me a little bit about that transition and that transition towards what you're doing today? I knew I didn't want to just go be a CEO or a CFO in another company. I decided that when I wanted to make the transition, I wanted to make a totally different transition to more a purpose-led, what is it that really fires me up. At the time, I was doing big transformation programs in culture culture, bringing together three organizations, co-hosting them in, in buildings, changing the underlying culture, discussing what the values are, changing the way we worked. So very much a very modern, modern working environment. So what happened is I already really realized that I liked this approach of focusing my time on culture, on change, on leadership development. But I got it into my head that I wanted to write a book and leave corporate life with something. 
So in the last year, I totally changed my regime. I have a very busy mind that is always all over the show. Well, at that stage, I used to get up at five o'clock in the morning, the last year of corporate life. I got up at five o'clock in the morning. I used to meditate for 10. I couldn't handle any more than 10, 12 minutes, use headspace to meditate. And then I would write for an hour and I would carry a little notebook around with me during the day. And if ever I had a little flash of that's quite a good idea to put in the book, I would write it in this little notebook. So in the morning, then I would start with what's in the notebook or, or if I didn't feel like that, I have quite a few inspirational quotes in the book that fit at different places. I would look for inspirational quotes or I would write last year, that was my regime. And then I would be in the office by eight and I would do my 12 hour shift. Well, not a shift, but you know what I mean? It's kind of like it was, that was just what the day was like. Lots of meetings and then you, you need to work afterwards. So it was generally like 12 hours or so. So I managed to write, I think, two to three mornings a week. The first thing was to find the idea the business idea. So I went into the city and I heard Chrissy Rucker speak, be your own boss. And I remember saying to the colleague who went with me, oh, that's quite interesting. There was no question that she was asked on the stage that I didn't feel I could answer myself. Of course, it was about her business. And so that gave me a lot of almost like a confidence boost that I could be an entrepreneur. And then I wanted to find, well, what is that idea? So what book that I didn't then write and where did that come from? And so the idea came when I was sitting at a Women's Day event at the Institute of Directors. And I'd sat in the same room three years in a row at this event. And they have different women who speak for International Women's Day. And I was thinking, well, if we were all, all just more authentic and brought more of our real selves to work, including men, because lots of men support their wives, their daughters, their cousins, their sisters. So if they were to bring that part of themselves to work, perhaps we wouldn't have so much of a diversity and inclusion issue. And so my thought was, it's more around bringing our authentic selves to work. And so the first book that I wrote was around um, authenticity and authenticity in corporate life. And how do you go on this journey of understanding yourself better? And that was the journey. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. And, and, and authenticity and bringing yourself to work, I think, just leads to a much more productive workplace and uh, and, and much more enjoyable workplace. I mean, I think uh, it's something that I try to do with my team on a, uh, on a regular basis is, well, on a daily basis is, is just to be open about what's going on in my own life and, and being curious and, and understanding about what's going on in my team's life. And yeah, I think it's just a good way to really help work-life integration, because I think that notion of work-life balance is just not, never something that we can, we can find necessarily uh, in perfect balance all the time, but that work-life integration and, and a realization that we're all challenged with various aspects of our life, whether it's, um, you know, managing kids or, or something else and being able to be authentic about that. And sometimes saying, Hey, I'm not having my best day at work today and having, and receiving empathy towards that. And then and understanding. And in doing so, that actually encourages or enables people to move past whatever it is and, and bring their best self to work the next day or the, the next week or whatever it is. So I completely agree with that, that idea of authenticity. I think it's, it's so powerful and something that we need to continue to foster within our own teams and with our own companies. So from there, you're now mentoring and coaching, and you also have a course around around leadership. As have I got that right, or maybe you can just uh, summarize for me the, the the two main sort of areas of focus right now. 
So perhaps I can just go back one step. So last year in COVID, I felt like a single voice on LinkedIn trying to convince finance leaders that these soft skills are really important. So it was a little bit like pushing a very heavy boulder up a hill. So I thought, how can I really make a difference? So before that, I had launched four four courses, four online courses. I said three and a half to four hours. First one being Team Purpose for Success, because we spoke about purpose and how important purpose is. One around the new mindset for the digital world, which is all about unlocking our creativity. One around facilitation, because you can imagine how important I believe facilitating a team is, because that's what brings the really great insights. And then a business partnering course, which I actually did with Anders Liu Lindberg, because I believe that shift to business partnering is extremely important. So that's that's what I did before. I had my company accredited, CPD accredited. And then I sat in this crisis and thought, I don't feel like I'm getting it right. What can I do? And so I started to interview people. So I interviewed 27 professionals and I called it the global leadership hypothesis. I asked them all the same questions. What makes a great leader? Where should the leader start? What holds the leader back from their full potential? And at the time, I didn't really understand how important that would be. I just knew it would be extremely important to do it. So I started to do it and I interviewed really amazing people. So I interviewed thought leaders like Anders, like Chris Argent on transformation, Andy Codd. They're all very known in the finance world. But I also interviewed very different people. I interviewed a transformational coach of the year, Gosha Gorner. I interviewed Jane Gunn, a mediator, because so often we get to mediation issues. And, you know, I wanted to understand from this cross-border of people, just normal finance professionals as well, who were working in transformation, then quite a lot of CFOs. I interviewed one very, very interesting person, Sir David Walker. He ran the Queen's Household and has a very long career in, in the Air Force. He was a, a Air Force Marshal. So just these different people, chairman of boards. I interviewed Hiltrud Werner, one of the main Volkswagen board members, Zara Baralalumi, running one of the divisions in Accenture globally, understanding what is important. And then these themes started to arise. So I realized that they're really these seven shifts to becoming a great leader, And then what I've now done, so the last two weeks, I've been spending my time on taking those seven shifts and the elements in the seven shifts. And I've taken those seven shifts and distilled them to five areas. And what I'm going to launch very soon is a course where I'm going to talk about the future ready finance leader. So, and then these five areas with what these professionals need to do to change. And uh, yes, so that's what I'm very excited about. And speaking to one of my, I do some work with Vlaka Lupik, who's the 11th most influential HR thinker in the world. And she's done really interesting things. Her book, The Management Shift, you know, how to create those collaborative organizations, Humane Capital, where she got a forward from the Dalai Lama. I mean, that's amazing. A business book with a forward from the Dalai Lama. and That is amazing. Yeah, very. And I was speaking to her and I was saying, you know, I've now created this and I, you know, it's so so great that I got there. And, and she said, well, you're actually an academic because you're doing research like an academic. And I was like, oh dear, you know, it, it didn't even dawn on me that that's actually what I was doing. So I was taking all, all the experiences from those 25 years in corporate life and then mixing it with all these people's experiences and saying, so what will make that future ready finance leader? Yeah, so that's the movement. 
you got to give us some insights. You got to, you got to <laughs> tell, tell us a little bit about those seven themes, five shifts that are going to come to uh, be taught through your, your upcoming, um, your course. Can you, can you give us a taster just at, just at maybe at a high level, what they are that, you know, what have you found through your research that it makes a great leader? So let's start with the, what makes a great leader. So people want someone who inspires them, someone who has some future direction and is able to articulate that in a really great way. And then it's someone who takes them along that journey. So that's the first thing. The second thing is it's, it's someone who's able to role model the right behaviors. So I cannot tell you how important role modeling is in this whole thing because they want that they, they want to look up to that leader, but not just in seeing the leader above them. Sometimes they want this to see the leader on par with them. So they want to see both the dynamics. And then there's the dynamic of what I would have called the very traditional, well, they're not traditional, they're more coming to light now. Those softer skills like empathy, being humble, being vulnerable, that's coming to the forefront massively. People want to see that in a leader to resonate with the leader. Which, which connects, I suppose, to, to what you were saying earlier about authenticity, right? Exactly, because authenticity for me is, is, is about exactly that, knowing when to share those vulnerable things and when not to and, and always staying true to yourself. The other thing is that's, that's really, really important for a great leader is to be very self-aware. And of course, that's the place that I see people not being so in touch with themselves, where they don't really understand what's driving them, what motivates them. So, so just as examples, I, I have another CFO that I mentored quite a while ago, and he would get very, very angry when he would take his numbers to the board and the board would disagree with the numbers. And, you know, through a, through a process of understanding himself better, we found that it's about self-awareness. And the fact is that he has this value of transparency, honesty. So he feels I'm being honest and transparent and they're pushing back. They're not pushing back against him. They're pushing back against they want higher numbers. You see that dynamic. And without without understanding they pressing one of your value buttons, you know, he was getting really angry. He was taking on an immense amount of stress before because he would already anticipate it before. And so just understanding that awareness a bit better about, you know, that's one of my value triggers. I can, I can step away from it. I don't need to get so emotionally embroiled in it made a huge difference for him. And I think there's a lot of listeners who can, I can relate to that personally. I think there's a lot of listeners that can relate to that, that, that necessity or the, the challenge and difficulty to disassociate oneself from the numbers that we're presenting. Cause we're so, we're so involved and so invested in, in the numbers, in, from a finance perspective, you know, making sure the numbers are, are, are truthful, are accurate, that are reliable, that tell the story, you know, in, in, in marketing and, and sales about driving the numbers up and wanting to see the, 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 the targets achieved. And we're so invested in, in, in effort and making that happening. It's hard to then make uh, the disassociation between the numbers and ourselves and, 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 and put that, that gap between them so that we're not feeling like we're completely tied up with the feedback that we end up getting when we end up presenting them. That's right. Okay. So the seven shifts I'll tell you about. So the first one is the agile mindset. What we just spoke about was what do people see as a great leader? 
So then I thought, what are the transformational shifts that these leaders need to make? So based on not just that first question, but also the questions of what holds leaders back, where should leaders start, how important is the interaction with other people, I came up with seven shifts. And the first shifts, I'm sure I can remember them all. The first shift is actually having an agile mindset. So it's, it's moving far more customer centric, far more continuous development, far more I can do anything. You know, I don't need to just focus on my own capabilities. I can go find whatever I need anywhere by bringing the right people together. So that really agile mindset. Like a growth mindset. Uh, yes, but it, it's a step further. So if, if, you, if you read all the, the, the academic writing about it, it's, it's a few steps further than uh, just Carol Dweck's uh, growth mindset. Yeah, she was the growth mindset, but the agile mindset, a uh, couple of Harvard Business Review, Forbes articles, it's, it's one step further. Then, then it's about leading inside out. So it's about exactly as we spoke a minute ago, have more self-awareness that you understand what your triggers are, that you don't get so upset by it, but that you're more motivating yourself from the inside, you're leading your people from the inside and not by what's affecting you in the external environment. The third one is individualization and connected relationships. It's moving away from that approach where we want to have a one size fits all and we lead everyone the same because people are individual individuals with different strengths with different values and then the connected team the connected relationships is using that leveraging that so that you have influence when whoever you're dealing with it's seeing the individual first understanding what motivates and drives them so coming less from the place of what matters to me but what matters to them? Because you can only build influence if you understand what matters to them. Then the third one won't be a surprise. I've spoken very much about consistent, continuous team development. So that's the the fourth one. The fifth one is creating a culture of trust. And the culture of trust is about the psychological safety we spoke about before. How do you create that safety? How do you bring out that vulnerability, the empathy, all of that, the right appreciation for the team? So very much centered centered around building, building that. The sixth one is around anticipating an unknown future. I don't think the world has ever been in a place like it is today where we need to understand the strategy of tomorrow. So we really need to become much more confident as finance professionals around making decisions with lower levels of information, around anticipating what could come next for the organization, where should our focus be, especially when we're looking forward, especially when we're looking scenario analysis. It's kind of what I said about how I led those teams in asking questions in a different way. And then the last shift is something that came through the interviews, but in a subtle way. So, you know, when you're interviewing people, there's always something that's underlying. And it's it's a little bit to our conversation that we had before we started. You know, you have to listen carefully what is being said there to actually hear the voices. And it's about being responsible leaders. If we just look at how the world of reporting is changing, we are moving to ESG, environmental social governance reporting. So the large companies have to start reporting that on this year's financials, but it's far more systemic. There's a huge movement within younger millennials towards it's not just about profit, it's about organizations driving purpose, having impact, having a a bigger footprint in the world, looking at society properly. And it's about that responsible leadership and innovation, driving that so that we 
in the end, we have to impact the world outside us, outside our organizations more responsibly. And I mentioned that I, I work a lot with directors and stakeholders wider than just the stakeholders that we normally look at is what boards really need to focus on. And I believe finance professionals need to do the same. If we're kind of the check and balance, if we're kind of the preemptive looking forward into scenarios, we're the ones who have to also start understanding how important that is and how that can be such an amazing competitive advantage for organizations. So the seven shifts. <laughs> Fantastic. Lots of rich insights and so much to learn and so so much, so many areas to grow across all of those shifts that you just described. And you said that you're going to take those shifts and they're going to, five of them are going to be the ones that are going to form part of your Future Ready Finance Leaders course. So those five, quick rundown on what those are. So it's the Agile Purpose Driven Finance Leader, the Influential Connected Leader, the transformational strategic leader, the responsible impactful leader, and the reflective leader. And the idea is that the first four each have two two-hour sessions, and the reflective leader is the final final two-hour session where you really bring it all together for you as a leader, because some will resonate more in the year and now and in the short term, and other pieces will be more future. And it's coming together as a as a plan for you being that reflective leader then, that then looks and scopes this, this plan for yourself. So the seven shifts translate really to those four, let's say, strong leadership maxims, if you want to call it, with the reflective leader being the last and making sure that during the training, you will make sure that you have this plan for yourself going forward. Amazing. And where do people go to find out more? So I will launch it as part of the Global Leadership Hypothesis. And at the moment, the Global Leadership Hypothesis, one can do, one can Google either Global Leadership Hypothesis or you can Google G-L-H-Y-P-O. So Global G-L-H-Y-P-O, so Hypo. That will be launched under that banner. So I will launch G-L-Hypo slash and then the, the course will become become live under that. And I will pr- probably run the first cohort in May. And so there will be, for the first group, there will, of course, be uh, a nice uh, discount. Also get some learning from the group and see how the group is responding to the different toolkits and areas. And why does it take me so long if I know now until, until May? I will also have it CPD accredited. Maybe it's one of those afflictions of coming out of a large corporate. I want some rigor behind it. So my organization is accredited with the UK CPD standards. And therefore, I I would like to have it accredited. And that's quite a long process, just to make sure that the rigor is there and, you know, that people can have the CPD credits afterwards, because that's also important for their continual professional development. Fantastic. So I should imagine that, you know, anyone also can go to your LinkedIn profile through there. They can link off to learn more about the global leadership uh, hypothesis and find out more about all the amazing work that you're doing, mentoring, coaching, developing finance professionals. Talita, it's been really an interesting conversation. Thank you so much for spending the time on today's show. It's been great having you on. Thank you so much, Rob. I've loved the questions. One last thing. If you have a question you'd like to ask a guest, visit cfoplaybook.fm to submit it. This show is brought to you by Soldo, the brighter way to manage business spending and expenses. 
With Soldo, you can control every expense with custom budgets and track transactions in real time, connect accounting software to automate reporting, then use those insights to fuel growth. Learn more at soldo.com.